All right, if you, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read from Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 44, and we'll read through Luke chapter 24, verse 12. Luke 23, 44 through 24, 12. It says, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary, Magdalene, and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. You can take a seat. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this climactic moment of your life, this climactic moment of history, at your death and your burial and your resurrection, Lord, I pray that we would reflect well on what you suffered for, on our behalf. Lord, would you help us by your Spirit to apply it to our lives this morning? 
Would you help us by your spirit to be encouraged by what you endured on our behalf that we might endure in faith and in obedience to you? We ask, we pray in your name. Amen. You know the feeling, even as a child, of doing something right and waiting for your parents to recognize it, you know? Kids, you know what that's like. You, you, you think to yourself today, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this as well as I can. I'm going to do it right. Mom and dad are going to love it. They're going to praise me for it. They're going to be just in awe of my abilities. They're going to reward me for it. It'd be nice to live in a world where every time we did the right thing, we were praised, honored, and rewarded for it, wouldn't it? But we know, because we've been kids and we've had that happen, and kids, you know that sometimes you do that, and your parents just kind of walk by. Oh, hey, yeah, thank you. Maybe they don't say anything at all. Worse yet, as sinful people define right by what they want and what seems good to them, oftentimes doing the right thing may actually result not in positive consequences, but in negative consequences. Not only does sometimes doing the right thing get ignored or unappreciated, but sometimes doing the right thing actually gets you punished. We can incur criticism, loss, for our best attempts to do right. Like a child whose parents fail to affirm how well they've done, it makes us wonder, why then do the harder thing? Why put in the effort? Why do the thing that's going to perhaps put a target on my back? You know, if you're that sibling that does, you know, what you're supposed to do, and you have that sibling who is in the habit of not doing what they're supposed to do, you know what happens when mom and dad aren't around, don't you? Why did you... Why did you do the dishes so well? Now we're, they're going to expect us to do it like that every time. You're making me look bad, right? It'd be easier to just kind of go with the flow, to throw in the towel. You know, we might not say it so explicitly, but how often do we think, you know, I could avoid, I could avoid doing the right thing. I could avoid doing the right thing that perhaps maybe people don't expect anyways. So long as I don't do the thing that's explicitly wrong from the Bible, I should be all right. And then I can avoid, you know, the criticism that may come with actively doing what's right and good. When this passage is preached, this passage of Christ's death and burial and resurrection, so often the focus is on, you know, how we can, how because of what Christ has done, we can get our ticket to heaven. How Christ through his death and his resurrection has obtained for us a ticket to heaven. And, and there's truth there, right? And that's a wonderful reality. But like someone standing in line at an amusement park, we're told, you know, it's going to be an amazing ride but it's 100 degrees outside, 
and the asphalt is steaming, and I'm crowded with people, and this wait has been an hour, and this is terrible. I sure hope it's worth it. I sure hope it's worth it. Sometimes we think, well, God lets you be in his family. Some suffering for him is the least that you can do. He saved you. Come on. Just deal with it. And there's truth there, right? Eternity is far better than any suffering that we can have to suffer here. But that's only part of the truth. That's not the whole picture. We do not have a father who stands far off, allowing us to suffer and not caring. We don't have a father who stands far off, paying no attention to those who do what's right and good, what his own son would do. When Peter wrote a letter to suffering Christians, 1 Peter, he applied Christ's suffering here, what we read here, to their situation, not only in reminding them of the next life, but applying it to their life right now, to their life in the present moment, to their life in the midst of the suffering that they were experiencing. See, Christ's sufferings revealed that the Father gives them what they need to stand in their suffering today. But they do not have a Father who's far off and uninterested, but one who has allowed His Son to suffer that He could make their life abundant, even in the midst of the suffering. And so as we may experience suffering for doing what's right, how can we how can we find help in Christ's suffering? How does Christ's suffering help us when we suffer for righteousness' sake? Well, I think there are three ways that we can see in this text. Three, three ways, three gifts that God gives us, that the Father gives us in Christ's suffering, that we can hold on to in the midst of our suffering for righteousness' sake. First, He gives us hope. Second, He gives us rest. And third, He gives us awe. We're going to see each of these in the three different scenes in the text here, His death, His, res- his burial, and His resurrection. All right, He gives... It gives us hope. Christ's suffering gives us hope. The climax of Luke's retelling of Jesus' death comes in Jesus' crying out of Psalm 31.5, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Those are David's words from Psalm 31, a psalm in which David trusts and calls out to God for deliverance and remembers how God has delivered him in different situations and seeks to give others hope because of that. But there are two events that coincide with these words that Jesus cries out from the cross. First, there's darkness that comes over the land in verse 44. And second, the curtain of the temple, the veil is torn in two in verse 45. What 
do those mean and why does Luke include them in the story? Darkness represents judgment from God. And we might assume that darkness represents judgment in the sense of God distancing himself from what's going on, distancing himself maybe even from Jesus at this moment when he's on the cross and taking on our sins. But when we look into the Old Testament prophets, of which so much of Luke, so, so much of Luke's gospel, he's revealing how Christ's life uh, is the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. And when we look into them and we look at passages like Amos 8.9 and Joel 2.10 and Zephaniah 1.15, among many others, what we find is that this darkness is actually a sign of the promise that God will judge everyone rightly and fully. That the darkness comes when God's judgment comes. far from being a depressing sign to Jesus, as he hung on the cross and he saw that the sun's light failed. He did not think, oh, Lord, Father, where are you from me? What he thought was, God, you are here, and I trust you, and I know that you will make all things right. He knows, he's reminded. It's like the Father coming close And just giving this thing to remind him, I am who I say I am, and I will do what I said I'll do. For the one who is righteous, who suffers wrongly, signs of God's judgment are not scary, they're comforting. They're comforting. And then we see this veil being torn in two, and what does that represent? Well, it represents access to God. You see, there were two veils, two curtains in the temple. One divided the outer court from the holy place, and the other divided the holy place from what's called the most holy place. And in the most holy place, that's where the presence of God and the tabernacle and the temple actually dwelled in a cloud, right, over the Ark of the Covenant, and the priest, the high priest, only the high priest, once a year would enter through that veil, would take much sacrifice and offering, much blood in order for him to be able to do so. And so here at this moment when the Lamb of God is slain and his blood is shed, the veil is torn in two, saying now because of Christ, every person can have access to the presence of God. And we know this is what it's about because Hebrews 10, 19 gives testimony to it. Listen to the words of the writer of Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, do you understand how wild that phrase would be to a Jewish audience? Who for millennia, only one man who was alive in any given year would be able to enter into that place. The writer of Hebrews says, you have confidence. Not only can you do it, but you have confidence to step into this holy place by the blood of Jesus. Not because you're so great, but because Christ's blood was shed for you and he is great. By the new and living way that he opened up for us 
You see, he was a sacrifice that not just, didn't just die, but rose again. Opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, see, he didn't just die to open up access to God, but he is the high priest now for us, mediating between us and the presence of God so that in him, if he is our high priest, we don't have to be concerned with the judgment that comes in the darkness, but we can walk right in to the holy place. So let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. You see, our hope is not in us and what we can do, but our hope is in the fact that Christ is faithful. And so we often create this sharp separation between God's judgment on the one hand and coming close to God on the other. We can't possibly think about coming close to God at the same time as thinking about God's judgment because those are two opposite things, are they not? But in reality, the Bible, and especially Luke says, no, those are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Because when God's presence comes close, there's only two options. Either by, because of your sin, you will be judged, or your sin is on His Son instead, and you have access to God. Those are the two options. And so Christ's suffering gives us hope. Hope in the Father's presence. He's with us. In 1 Peter 4, Peter, as I said, picks up on this. And he applies it to those whom he's writing to, these suffering Christians. And he, he writes this, he says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're insulted for sharing Christ, you're insulted for confessing Christ, you're in insulted for living, acting, breathing like Christ would, right? Believing what Christ believed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, he says. Because why? Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When we suffer for righteousness, not only do we have hope, but we can have joy. Joy in the midst of it, knowing that we still have far more blessing than our suffering because the Lord is with us. Joy in that, look, if you are not truly, truly a believer, if you were not, if, if your faith was not truly in Christ, if Christ was not truly preserving you, when you experienced that suffering, you would run. You would renounce Christ. But Christ is holding on to you. But Christ is holding fast. And so you know, the Spirit is with you. The Father is with me. I am in Him. And that ought to give us hope. Not only does it give us hope, but it also gives us rest. And when I say rest, I don't necessarily mean inactivity, right? You know, when you have something that needs to be done, but you're not sure how it's going to go. You just don't really want to do it. You've got a 
uh, maybe a chore around the house, maybe you got a car that needs to be fixed, maybe something on the house that needs to be fixed, and you're thinking, you know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I need to do that, but like, I'm just like, as soon as I tear into that, then I got to get it done, and I'm not really sure how it's going to go. I've never done this before, and this could be just a huge headache, like a huge headache. And so, what do you do? You sit down on the couch and you turn on Netflix, right? You watch a show instead. That's what you do. Because you're like, Ugh, I don't know. I don't know about all that. But the whole time you're sitting there resting, inact- inactive, what's happening in your, in your gut? You know it's still there. You know it still needs to be done. You know you're still not sure how it's going to go. There's no rest there. Yes, you're not doing anything. You're sitting on the couch, but there's no rest. Not the kind of rest that we're talking about here. And then there's the person who, even though they aren't sure how it will turn out, they know they must do it. They must engage it. It has to be done, and so there's no sense in putting it off. Let's get it done. See what happens. They're physically in motion. They're physically active, and yet in whatever steps they're taking, they're at rest. Hey, it'll figure itself out. I'll figure it out. Yeah, it might not go the way I think, but we'll get it done. That's the kind, that, that, that's beginning to touch the kind of rest that I'm talking about here. The kind where, as best as you can tell, you know what God would have you do, and so you do it. Even if it is met with resistance and suffering. Because your confidence, your confidence isn't in your ability to produce an outcome, but in your clear conscience that whatever may happen, you did what God asked you to do, and you can rest easy no matter what happens. You know what I'm talking about? That kind of rest where when you lay your head on the pillow, there is no doubt, there's no regret in your mind or in your heart. You can rest easy because you know that God approves of whatever you did that day, that kind of rest. See, we can have rest. God gives us rest in the Father's commands, and there's two ways in which we can have rest in the Father's command, commands. First, we can have rest by avoiding disobedience, right? You see, Joseph was a good and righteous man, it says. He did not consent with the decision or action of the council to kill Jesus. While he is sorrowful for the death of Christ, he can lay his head on the pillow that evening, going into that Sabbath, resting, knowing, I did everything in my power to resist this injustice. And consider what great risk it would have been to him. It would have been very easy. He would have known, there's no way I can win this fight. I'm outnumbered. And if I speak out against these things, now I have a target on my back. Now everyone knows whose side I'm on. To stand against the council would have put him at risk of having the same fate. That's not always so clear-cut, is it? 
disobedience like that, that we can read and we can go, well, of course, now, if we were in his situation, maybe we wouldn't do what he did. Maybe we wouldn't have the boldness and the courage to do what was right. But at least it's, it seems clear cut. But it's not always so clear cut, is it? The women, the women here, they, it says that they rested on the Sabbath. Do you see that? Verse 56, on the Sabbath, they rested according to the what? The commandment. Now, they could have said to themselves, this thing we plan to do, it's, it's a good thing. Certainly, Jesus would have wanted us to do it, to prepare these spices, to apply them to his body. We're motivated by love for Christ, and truly their actions were driven by magnificent love for Jesus. I think we're to read this text and see these women and go, these women loved their Lord dearly. But Jesus said that those who love him will keep his commands, and Jesus said to keep the Sabbath, and so they obey Jesus' words even still. And my wife, she had got a book recently um, you know, from one of these secondhand stores, you know, she was going to read this book, and so she bought it used, and so she's reading it, and she's like, oh yeah, someone else wrote some notes in it, but they stopped after like the first two chapters, and so it's not really too many scribbles in there, and I'm like, oh, okay, good. And she's reading along, and then she's like, hey, Cody, check, check this out, and she, and she opens it up, and, uh, and, it, and, and the author is making this point in the second chapter, saying that the greatest way that you can, if you love Jesus, the greatest way that you can love Jesus is to obey him. And the person who had the, had the book before my wife had circled that line and had a little message off on the side saying, disagree, exclamation mark. Apparently, apparently that was uh, frustrating enough for that person to stop reading the book because they didn't get past that chapter. They didn't have any notes past that chapter. The problem with that is, is that that's verbatim what Jesus said. It's verbatim what Jesus said. And how often do we think, Oh, Jesus, I have a better way to love you. Hey, Jesus, I know what you said, but I have a better way to love. I've, you know, you lived 2,000 years ago, Jesus, and we figured a few things out since then. You know, it's not your fault. It's not your fault you were born in when you were. And so that's, that's cool, but no, 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 no. If you think you are doing something for Jesus and it disobeys something else in Scripture, then you need to ask yourself whether or not you are really motivated by love for God or whether you're motivated by love for yourself. So we can rest in the Father's commands by avoiding disobedience, but we can also rest in the Father's commands by doing good and and you might say, well, what's the difference? Well, I think that there's actually quite a bit of difference between the two. And too often we stop at avoiding disobedience. We, here's the list of things we're not supposed to do. If I just don't do those things, then I'm okay, right? Outside of that, I can kind of do whatever I want. I want, you to, I want you to know, no, that's not true. Christ died for you, for all of you, your life is to be a living sacrifice to him. That's what Paul says in Romans. He says, in view of God's mercies, brothers, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, wholly pleasing to God. All of who you are. Well, what's that look like? Well, 
Look at how it describes Joseph here. Not only is he a good and righteous man, but it says that he was looking for the kingdom of God. He's not merely looking to avoid evil, but his life was oriented towards Christ, oriented towards God's kingdom, seeking it. Do you merely avoid disobedience or do you seek out God's kingdom more and more in your life? How can I get more of God's kingdom in this area of my life? How can I get more of God's kingdom at work and in my marriage and in my, in my home and in my neighborhood and wherever I am? Listen, if Christ died to give you life and life abundant, why would you not want more of Christ in your life and in every area of your life? Why would you not want more abundance? I wonder if it's because we actually think that we can give ourselves abundance in our own way better than Christ can. Scripture may say something general like, you know, do good to others, but there's not really any proof text for risk your neck asking for the dead man's, a dead man's body and then giving them, uh, give them your own grave to be buried in. You know, there's no, there's no passage in the Old Testament that Joseph turns to and goes, ah, uh, here, here is, you know, dear Joseph of Arimathea, uh, I know you won't live for a while longer, but when um, Jesus dies, you know, here's what you should do. No, there's no proof text for that. And yet, here's Joseph. He loves the Lord. He feels led to do this thing. And he does it. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone ought to have done it, right? But for whatever reason, Joseph had the means to do it. God had put it in his mind to do it. He had the position to be able to actually get an audience with Pilate to ask the question. He had the tomb ready. He had everything. God had given him everything. So he obeyed. If he hadn't have done it, I don't think anyone would have said, oh, Joseph, you're so disobedient. No, he just never would have been in the Bible. The women could, they could not have done what Joseph did. They had no grave to give. They had no position to be able to get an audience with Pilate. Does that mean that they are less? They matter less to Jesus, that, they, that they're unable to be as obedient as Joseph was because they can't do what Joseph did. No, not at all. God never asked them to do what Joseph did. He had a different task for them. There was no complaining. It's not like they stood up and said, well, I would have, Jesus, um, provided a tomb for you, but, you know, I'm a woman, and so I can't own a tomb, and so, you know, sorry. No, they saw another need. By God's providence, they were in the position to do so. By God's providence, it was on their hearts to do so. They had the ability. They had the means. You know, typically, uh, bodies, deceased bodies were typically wrapped in spices and ointments to combat the smell of death and decay. And so seeing that that didn't happen, seeing that Christ's body was merely laid, wrapped in a linen and laid in the tomb, these ladies say, you know what? We can take care of that. 
They go back and they prepare. You know, in typical male fashion, Joseph got the basics done, right? Body, off, cross, in, grave. Check. Did it. But there was no woman's touch. We need a woman's touch, don't we? How grateful. We ought to be that there was a crowd of women who loved their Lord so much that they were willing to do this for him. That they didn't think it was underneath of them. But they did it. They were obedient. How often do we have the means and the thought comes to our mind and it's, and it's in no way disobedient to anything else in Scripture. How often is our response to say yes, or how often is our response to make an excuse? How often is our response to say yes, or how often is it to look at someone else and say, I would do it if I was in their position. I would do the thing that God called them to do. That seems great, but I don't want to do the thing he's called me to do. That doesn't seem as good. Consider again Peter reflecting on Jesus' suffering, applying it to the suffering of his own readers in 1 Peter 4. He tells them that there's no benefit in suffering for doing what God forbids. He says, there's no benefit for you if you suffer for doing wrong, for doing evil, for doing wickedness. There's no benefit. If, but the, if the righteous still suffer, if those who do right still suffer, how much more will the unrighteous suffer? And then he says in verse 19 there, He says this, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Listen, if you suffer for doing what's good and right, what God would want you to do, what what he has asked you to do, trust your creator. He's faithful and keep doing good. Keep doing what's right. It is far better to bear evil than to do evil. It's far better to bear evil than to do evil. So how does Christ's suffering help us when we suffer for righteousness' sake? It gives us hope in the Father's presence. It gives us rest in the Father's commands. But finally, I want to share, it gives us awe as well. Awe. The women head to Jesus' tomb on the third day to care for his dead body. They had prepared all the spices. They rested over the Sabbath. And then they get up and they go to the tomb to, to, to do what they had planned to do. And we could say, we could say that if these women, or any of Jesus' followers for that matter, had been listening well enough and had faith well enough, they'd, they'd be going to watch him come up out of the grave, right? They ought to have gone, oh, Grab the lawn chairs. Let's go, let's go get ready for the show. It's going to be the third day. He's coming out. But even though their faith and their understanding was deficient, they acted in genuine love and obedience as best as they were able. They followed the commands of God, and God used them to put them right there in the right place at the right time, even if they were there for the wrong reason. God used it. He doesn't, listen, he doesn't have to work around us, but he works in our deficiencies. 
Church, God, Christ doesn't work around our flaws and our failings and our shortcomings and our weaknesses. He works through our deficiencies. He's able because of who he is, not because of what we are not. We can't hinder his plans. And as much as we try to make plans, I want you to know God's plans are better. God's plans are better than your plans. Sorry to break it to you, but that's actually a really good thing. Even the suffering plans of God, even the plans that cause us pain and hurt and heartache, deep, deep heartache, they're better than our plans. So God gives us awe when he reveals to us the Father's plans. But I won't lie to you, they can be kind of hard to stomach at first. Like medicine, I remember when I was a kid, I didn't want to take medicine. Those little chewable Tylenols, you know, I had a flu. I was at my grandma's house. I can remember this like it was just yesterday. I was at my grandma's house, and they got those little red chewable Tylenols, and they, they're supposed to taste good. They taste terrible. And so my grandma takes them, and she, she crumples it up, you know, and then she mixes it with a bunch of sugar, and she puts it on the spoon, you know. And she's like, here, eat this, you know. It's like taking medicine sometimes. This suffering is like taking medicine that looks and tastes gross at first. But then what God does with it, we realize that that it heals us, that it makes us better. It makes us more like Christ. And so I want to share with you three awful truths. And yes, I'm going to play on the word ah, and that's awful, I know, but bear with me. Three awful truths about the Father's plans, real quickly. The women showed up with their spices and they can't find the body. They're perplexed. They're at a loss as to what happened or what to do. Listen, sometimes when we seek to be obedient to God, things don't go as we expect. We go through suffering. It doesn't work. We're perplexed. It perplexes us. We find ourselves standing there, frozen, thinking, what am I supposed to do now? And, 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 and we're going along just fine. We're serving God, and then suddenly we lose our job, or a relationship blows up, or there's some great loss in our lives. What are we supposed to do? We're perplexed. As that's happening, two men, two angels show up, and the women are frightened, and they bow their faces, it says. And here's the first awful truth in, God, in the Father's plan. It humbles you. It humbles you, and you need humbled. We all need humbled. We can slowly begin to think, you know, hey, I get this. I'm kind of awesome. I'm pretty good. And then God comes along and does something unexpected and reminds us that he's God and we're not. It reminds us that there's spiritual forces at work that we need every bit of him if we are even going to do a single thing. Remember, however, God does not humble his people like the world might humble people. God does not push people down in order that he might stand a little bit taller on the heaping pile of their bodies. No, God does not need a boost from us at all. He's at the top already on his own. The reason that he humbles us is that we might stop trying to lift ourselves up on our own, that we might reach out so that he can lift us up far, far higher than we would have otherwise God does not humble you to keep you low. He humbles you to lift you up. 
He humbles you to exalt you with his son. And so the angels, they immediately speak this encouraging rhetorical question, why do you seek the living among the dead? It's a little bit of humility. You should be here looking for Jesus to be alive. Don't worry, I'm about to lift you up. Jesus isn't dead. And then, they rem- then, then, then they're reminded of how Jesus had said all those things, and God opens their eyes to the reality that this was all part of the plan. Now, here, here's the second awful truth of the Father's plan. It establishes you. It doesn't just humble you. It establishes you. As Christ was humbled in his death in order to be exalted in life, so the Father humbles us in order that we might be encouraged and exalted in his plan that is far more and far beyond what we expect. Listen, how much firmer was the faith of these women? Because they came to the grave with spices they didn't need. And two angels spoke to them and said, Why are you looking for the dead among why are you looking for the living among the dead? They're humbled so that they can be established. They go through pain, the pain of Christ's death and burial so that they can experience the joy of his resurrection. And so the women do the most reasonable thing that you could think, considering what's happened. They go back and they tell the apostles and all the other people, all the, other, all, all the rest of Christ's followers what had happened, but the story seems like an idle tale. And I find this interesting, the word there for idle, it's, it's, it's like they think the women are delirious. You know, you've seen someone that's woken up from surgery and they've been like drugged and they're just like all over the place. That's what they think is going on. These women are just delirious. They're just bad, like saying, like, like it's not like, we don't fault you. It's been a tough couple of days. You've hallucinated. But Peter, he must see for himself. And so he goes to the tomb and he finds it as they said, no body there. And he goes away marveling at what had happened, it says. Does he put it all together like the women have? Yeah, it's not entirely clear. But here, here is the third awful truth that I want you to understand. Not only does it humble us, not only does it establish us, but it, the Father's plan moves you. And I don't mean in like a sentimental sort of way, though it, though it certainly can be emotional, though it certainly can move us to action. What I mean to say is it moves you from who you are towards who you ought to be. Not just in your feels, not just in what you do, but in your very being. God uses these kinds of experiences to make Peter into the man he needs him to be to do the work that he needs done for his kingdom. God uses these kinds of experiences in your life when you obey Him through it, when you trust Him through it, when you put your faith in Him through it. He uses them to make you into the men and the women that He needs you to be for what He wants you to do, the works He's prepared beforehand for you, for His kingdom and His glory. I'd love to tell you all that it's going to be all happy and feel good. I'd love for you all to accomplish great things and be successful. But what, but what good is any of that if you are not growing in the faithfulness and righteousness of Christ? That is the most important thing to Christ. Not what you accomplish. 
Listen, whatever you're going to accomplish in your life, God could have accomplished it through a hundred different people, a million different, a billion different people. He doesn't actually need you. Let's be humbled for a second. He doesn't actually need you. And yet he establishes and uses you anyways. But his number one motivation is to make you like his son. He wants more children who look like their brother Jesus. See, it's not that Jesus suffered. It's not only that Jesus suffered, so we should as well. And so we ought to just grit our teeth and bear it in our own strength. Rather, Christ's own sufferings show us that first, God is with us. Second, God's commands are good. We can rest in obedience. And third, God's plans always work. Jesus didn't stay in the grave. So to put it simply, those who suffer for righteousness can trust their Father. You can, even in the midst of that suffering. Peter concludes this way in 1 Peter 5, 10 through 11, he says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. There are three words that ought to give us hope, rest, and awe if we are righteous sufferers. Jesus is king. He rules. He has dominion. The Jesus who suffered on the cross is the Jesus who sits on the throne. The Father sees when His children do the right thing. And if we share in Christ's suffering, we will share in Christ's glory. That's the promise. We can trust the Father. Let's pray.